Hey everyone, Father Anthony here. And if at any point you've been impacted by our ministry at STSA, then listen up because we need your help. We are so close to reaching our goal of raising $2 million, but we need your help to cross the finish line. If each of our 11,000 online subscribers donates just $165, then we can reach our goal. We can't do it alone, but with your help, I know we can get there. Text the number below or click the button to donate now. And may the God of heaven bless you and make you prosper and reward you for your generosity. Now enjoy the message. Now that we are in week five, that means we've talked about four core values thus far. And I'm going to do something very risky right here. I'm going to do something very risky. I'm going to see if anyone remembers anything I've spoken about in the past month which is very risky when you are a preacher and you pour your heart and soul into this thing right here. And then to ask and see, does anyone remember anything that's been said over the past month? It's risky, but I'm feeling good. And I got something with me to give me a little bit of confidence. And that is, oh, I lost it right here. Thought I had it in my pocket. There it is right there. I have chocolates, okay? So there's some incentive to hopefully help jog the memory right there. And these are not, these are not gas station chocolates like I picked up on the way here today. These are like fancy, like other people gave it to us as a gift, but we haven't eaten them chocolates. They're called Godiva's, okay? These are very good. Just don't look at the expiration date and you'll be totally fine when you eat these things, okay? Let's go, shout it out. Who remembers the first core value? And if you say it, with, you say it right there, go ahead. Limitless acceptance, very good. But you don't need to raise your hand. You can just shout it out. The first one was limitless acceptance. Okay, we got lots of chocolates. So multiple people can get chocolate. Limitless acceptance talks about every person that enters our church is the most important person in the world. Why? Because they didn't enter on their own. They are sent here by God and they will be loved and accepted as such. And every one of us agrees there was a point in time where we were not worthy of acceptance, but he accepted us and someone down here accepted us. So we will turn and do the same. Second core value. We talked about the second week. Who remembers? Shout it out. Who's got it? Authentic community, I heard it right here. Anyone else? No, no one said it over there? I got lots of chocolates, guys, so let's go. Authentic community. An authentic community talks about we're not just welcoming people in and say hi to them on Sunday and then throw them back out on the street from where they came from, but we're a family. And we believe that God created the church to meet our needs, our, our spiritual needs, as well as our relational needs. And we don't want to be superficial relationally when it comes to God. And we don't want to be superficial when it comes relationally to one another. Authentic community is what it's all about. Third core value. Who remembers the third core value? Shout it out. I want to give away three pieces of chocolate this one. No doubles on the chocolate. You got the piece of paper in front of you right there. It's cheating. Okay. Who didn't hear what she said? Shout it out. Who remembers what she said? Transformational something, transformational something, transformational coffee, transformational donuts, whatever, just transformational, right? Transformational communal worship, which says that what unites us, what makes us an authentic community family is not that we have similar interests, not that we vote the same or we think the same. What makes us united together is the table of the Lord and the table of the Lord, the Eucharist, that's the center of our life. That's what unites us. That's not routine. That's not symbolic. That's real. And that's the center of our life together. Last week, who remembers what we talked about? Faith-filled vision. My man, Abraham. If his name is Abraham, he's got to talk about faith, okay? Faith-filled vision. Very good. And faith-filled vision says, remind me, this was last week, so you have to be able to remember this. We believe in a blank God. What's the blank? We believe in a? It was big. It was big God. We believe in a? That's the most pathetic big God I've ever heard in my life. We believe in a? Big God. Okay, we don't believe in a little God. We don't believe in a little God that can barely, barely do small things. We believe in a big God. 
And we rely on that big God to do extraordinary things in our lives. Help me out here, SCSA family. We are not surprised when God does a miracle. We are more surprised when he doesn't. We will be more surprised if at the end of our life that we finished all that we did in the church and we say, no, no miracles happened. That will be shocking. That will be shocking because we believe in a big God, not a little God. And like we said earlier, in case you missed any of those, you can get caught up on our YouTube page. But we are going to jump today. We're not doing these core values necessarily in order. We're kind of choosing based on kind of the direction that I feel like God is, is trying to speak to us. We're going straight to the last of the core values right now. The series is not over. We still got one more week. Okay, not next week. We're off for Labor Day, but the week after that. And the last core value is genuine love for community. Can we read this all together? Genuine love for community. Read it with me. We bleed with love for the community around us especially those who are without Christ. We don't just care about spiritual needs, but physical, emotional, and social needs as well. We seek to be a true blessing to the community in whatever way we can. Let me ask you a question before we talk about genuine love for community. If I had to ask you, what's the goal of Christianity? What would you say? What's the goal of everything we do? Why do we do what we do? Why are you a Christian? What are you aiming for? How do you know, better way of saying it, how do you know if you're doing a good job being a Christian? How do you know if you're excelling or you're behind? Like, where's the report card? Is there like a, uh, like a, what's the, the, the thing where they send the note saying your child is not doing so well, please do extra. Like, where's that? What's the goal? Is the goal, like some would say, Bible. Like, that's the goal. Our goal is to read the Bible. Our goal is to pray. Our goal is to go to church. Our goal is to give to the poor. Our goal is to tithe. Our goal is to serve. Well, what would you say? Like, what is it that you're driving towards? And how do you know if you're doing a good job at it? Sometimes I hear things like, our goal is to glorify God, which I agree, that's a perfect answer. But that's kind of vague. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean like, uh, I, I pray before I eat? Like, is that the, like, how do I know what it means to glorify God, to live for God? If we believe, which I hope you do, that you were created by God on purpose, then my question to you is, have you ever thought about what is that purpose? And what is it to let you know if you're doing a good job at it or not? Some would say our goal is to believe and faith, which sounds good on the surface. But according to the epistle of St. James, you know who believes is the demons believe. So that can't be the goal. Can't be what Satan has achieved. That's my goal. I mean, I don't want to be in that category. Some would say, okay, our goal is to be saved. They say, okay, but our goal is to be saved. And then what? Like our goal is to reach a point where if we die, we'd go to heaven. But then what after that? Like that and just do nothing. Some say our goal is to avoid major sins. Like, don't do bad stuff. And I say, okay, sounds good, but that's like saying the goal of my marriage is to not cheat on my wife. Okay, there's obviously this much bigger, much, hopefully, like, that's like baseline, that's like bare minimum, but hopefully my goal is much higher. What is the goal of Christianity? I'm gonna give you a couple verses that I think can help us answer this question. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 gives us a big clue into the answer. St. Paul says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's an important phrase. Conform to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among men, many brethren. So what St. Paul is saying here is the reason that we were created, the reason God put us on here is to become like him. So we were made in his image, but obviously some stuff happened along the way that messed us, messed us up. So the goal is to get rid of the stuff that's covering up the image of God that's inside of us. Okay, think of it like a beautiful Mona Lisa painting, okay, that someone flicked boogers on, okay? So the Mona Lisa is beautiful, but the boogers make it look kind of disgusting. So that's kind of how we are as humanity. 
is that we are beautiful, made in the image of God, but then we put dirt and we put sin and we put all kinds of lust and greed and selfishness on top. So the goal is to uncover that so that just Christ and the image of Christ would shine through us. I'll give you another verse that says pretty much the same thing. First John chapter two, verse six, it says a little more practically. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walks. Now, St. Saint, Saint John makes it a little bit more practical, not just the image of Christ in a theoretical way, but to walk as Jesus walked. So that means, okay, Jesus used to treat his enemies a certain way. My goal is to treat my enemies the same way, image of Christ. Jesus used to treat his friends a certain way. My goal is to treat my friends the same way. Jesus used to pray a certain way. My goal is to pray that way. Jesus used to forgive a certain way. Jesus used to honor his mother a certain way. Jesus used to deal with people who disagreed with him a certain way. My goal is to do as he did, to speak as he did, to live as he, live as he lived, and as St. John says, to walk as he walked. See, so often we focus on, you know, Christ came to die for us. Christ came to die for us. For sure, Christ came to die for us. But you can't water down the entire ministry of Christ just to his death on the cross. Because that's basically saying the first 33 years of his life, he wasn't doing anything. Think of it this way. Here I am, I'm, I'm a priest, okay, and I've been serving however many years, and one day, okay, I'll be my last Sunday, and I'll be going off into retirement and right off into the sunset, and let's say on that particular Sunday, after serving 40 years or whatever it is, I give this sermon, and it's a great sermon, and it's like the best sermon ever, and people say, yes, the whole ministry of Father Anthony was because of that sermon. I say, I'm killing myself for 40 years, and all you care about is the sermon I gave at the end? No, 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 and same with Jesus. Yeah, Jesus died for us, but Jesus lived for us too. And as he lived, he taught us how we should live. Everyone with me so far? Okay, now, if we want to live like him, walk as he walked, let's look at how did he live his life. And I want to say specifically, I don't want to look at a particular event. We'll look at some examples in a little bit. But I want to talk, talk about it at a macro level. What did Jesus come to do? Because if we are his body, whatever he came to do, we should be coming here to do as well. Whatever he says, I was sent to do this and I did it this way, we should say we are sent to do that and we're going to do it the same way. Everyone with me? John chapter 1 verse 14 I think tells us exactly the answer to our question. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's what I want to do with this one verse right here, because I think this sets for us why Christ came. I want to take this verse, and I want to go like elementary school style, like who, what, where, when, why, but not those questions. I want to say, what did Jesus do? Why did he do it? And how did he do it? Because I think that's going to inform our answer. Jesus, the head, church, the body. What did he come to do? How, why did he do it? And how did he do it? And then we're going to see how that should inform how we operate as a church family. So let's start with the what. The what is God became one of us and dwelt among us. God became one of us and dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus was more than just a teacher, a great rabbi. He was more than just a miracle worker. He was Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God with us. He didn't, which he could have done, stood up in heaven and be like, you guys should do this. You guys should do that. Stop doing that. Go do that. He didn't do that. He could have just sent us a Bible and said, all the notes are in here. Do what it says right there. He didn't. He came down. He said, where do you guys live? We said on earth. He said, okay, I'm coming to earth. He said, what do you guys look like? We said human beings. He said, okay, I'll become one of those. 
And he said, what's a human being happen when it doesn't eat? It gets hungry. Okay, I'll get hungry when I don't eat. I'll get thirsty when I don't drink. You guys get cut and you bleed. I'll get cut and I'll bleed too. Whatever you are, I want to become you. And that's what he did. Not from a distance, but he came to where we lived. He spoke our language. He became like us. Question, why? Answer, two things. To show us who God is and to show us who we are called to be. To show us who God is. I'm God. You guys don't understand. See, before Jesus, there was a lot of confusion about God. A lot of people had some funny ideas and they thought certain things about him that simply weren't true. So Jesus said, you know what? Instead of, instead of giving you a, a message that you're probably going to misinterpret, let me show you. I'm God. And again, I'll come speak your language. I'll wear your clothes. I'll walk in your villages. I'll go to where you go. I'll become like you. And then you will see who God is. And you'll also see who you are called to be. There's a passage from John chapter 14 where Philip, his disciple, says, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Philip comes and says, hey, Jesus, we want to see God. And Jesus is like, hello, earth to Philip or heaven to Philip, okay? Hello, I've been with you this long and you still don't know? Like, I'm him. I'm like, who he is? That's me. I'm sure Philip is like, my bad, my bad. Just asking a question, my bad. And Jesus says it this way in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Saying, I came to remove the guesswork. I came to get rid of the, no, we think God would, do, if God was here, we think God would do this. No, 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 you don't know. If, we, if God was here, we think he'd do this. No, we think he'd vote this way. No, we're sure he'd vote this way. No, we're sure that God would, no, we, we would know. So Jesus said, okay. Stop you arguing. I'm going to show you. If you want to know how God would think, I'll show you. You want to know how God would act? I'll show you. You want to know how God would deal with politics? I'll show you. You don't have to discuss it on social media. I will show you. And Jesus came and showed us exactly how God would treat all those different events. And the way he did it, <clears throat> the how, he revealed God and revealed us not by explaining, but by revealing him. Not by explaining God, but by revealing him. Not by telling us, but by showing us. And that's why he said, if you've seen me, you know God. You know, there's a lot of things in the world today that we take for granted. A lot of things that we just assume that's the way it is, and it's probably always been that way because it just makes sense. Specifically in Christianity. And I'll give it to you very simple. Let me give you something that you take for granted. Something that you learned very early on when you went to Sunday school, when you were in first grade. You learned a fact of life, which is the most important fact of life but you take for granted that everyone just kind of understands this. And I'll start the sentence and you fill in the blank. It's a verse from the Bible and it says, God is love. God is love, okay? God is love. You learned that when you're kids, right? Everyone knows God is love. And no one doesn't, anyone here doubts God is love? Now we may argue what that love would look like or what that love would do, but no one, no one argues that God is love. Well, did you know, you have to know this, that the concept of God is love is a very new concept in the history of the world, history of civilization. Because you realize before Jesus, no one said God is love. Because before Jesus, the gods, the world of the deity, had nothing to do with love. Again, we take it for granted. Of course God is love. But back then, okay, yes, in the Old Testament, the God of love revealed himself, but the people didn't get it. And for the most part, most people in the world, when they thought of gods, had nothing to do with a personal relationship. It had to do with, think of it like the, the mythology, okay, in the Roman gods and the Greek gods. 
They, gods were scary. All gods, God didn't care about you. God, you just stayed out of the way of the gods. Like your goal with gods was just don't let them see your face. Don't get known because what gods can do is they can smite. And gods at the whims. So if a god gets upset, a village gets wiped out. And if a god gets happy, they get lots of crops over here. But the gods had nothing to do with a personal relationship. Had nothing to do with love. Gods had their own selfish agendas and they used humanity and creation to accomplish their purposes. Said another way, before Jesus, before Jesus, the gods didn't care about people, so therefore people didn't care about people. The gods didn't care about people, so the people didn't care about people either. And again, this is not just people, not, this, this includes God's people as well. Regardless of all the verses that God talked about in the Old Testament, you could see the love of God there. People missed it. Everything for the, the people of God was a class system. You had good people, you had bad people. You had rich people, you had poor people. You had sinful people, you had righteous people. Then you had a third category, which is even lower than sinner, which was tax collectors. They were the worst. Everyone was in a category. We won't even get to men versus women, children versus adults. Everyone was in a category. And here's the important part. You could never leave your category. So if you were born into a sinful category, that's where you were for life. Unless the only exception was karma from the gods. So if there was an act of God, so all of a sudden you're a sinful person, you're a sinner, everyone knows you're a sinner. Then all of a sudden you have a great harvest. That means that the gods had mercy on you and the gods did you a favor. So therefore you move from this category to this category. But other than that, you got no chance. And the opposite, you're born righteous, but then you get a sickness or an illness. So clearly the gods hate your guts and you did something, so you're cursed. You move now to this category. Does that sound like a society that anyone wants to live in? In this society, there was no such thing as compassion. Why would you have compassion? Why would you care about others if it's all in the hands of the gods? The gods, in, in, in the way of the world before Jesus, people got what they deserved. So if you see a homeless person on the street, that's what they deserved. You see a rich person over here, that's what they deserved. That's the way the world operated. And to show you, okay, into the world that Jesus was born, what made it even worse was during the Roman Empire, the culture of slavery. And did you know, I didn't know this till recently, that during the time of Jesus, okay, during that, that ancient world, the first century world, in the Roman Empire, there was more slaves than free. The number of slaves was more than 50% of the people. You had a certain number of citizens and you had more than that when it came to slaves. And when you have a society where the majority of the people are slaves, nobody cared about anybody. No such thing as compassion because everybody knew that you were just one bad break away from being someone else's property. So if you had it good now, you didn't really care about those who didn't have it good because that's just kind of, the majority don't have it good and you're just one bad break. So if you, you're a farmer, okay, you're just one bad uh, winter or one bad spring or whatever season it's supposed to be from being poor and having nothing, having everything destroyed. If you are a lady, you're just one accident to your husband away from being a widow who nobody cares about because you add no value to society. If you're a kid, 
If you're a kid, you got no use whatsoever. You're going to get picked up by the first guy because your parents got like 10, 15 kids and you don't have any, add any value to them until you can work. You're basically just, any day could be your last day with your family. Someone could just pick you up and throw you over there. Everyone was someone else's property, potentially. There was no such thing as human rights, no such thing as human dignity. And then came Jesus, who in his first speech said this in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. To which everyone thought when he said this, who cares about those people? Like he sent me to preach to the poor. Why? Who cares about the poor? They're probably poor because God hates them. He sent me to, to fix the recovery site to the blind. Why? The gods clearly don't like the blind. They smit them with blindness. Who cares about them? Who cares about the oppressed? Who cares about the brokenhearted? Oh, sing me a song. Like who cares about the brokenhearted? There was no such thing as, as human rights, human dignity. That's why, maybe you've heard this before, I had a neighbor in my old neighborhood who used to talk, talk to me about secular humanitarian. I didn't know what the word meant, but I asked him what it meant, and he basically said, said it meant Christian. That's what I understood it, okay, as he was explaining it to me, okay, which means basically you do good, but you don't believe in God. That's what he explained it to me. The idea of secular humanitarian, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus started that. <laughs> Jesus was the first one that said you should care about people even though you get nothing from them. So you can't actually believe in that unless you believe in Jesus because he's kind of the, the, the founder of the movement, so to speak. He was the first one to teach that people had intrinsic value even if they didn't have economic value. People had value regardless of where they could contribute to society just because they were people. And if you don't believe me, let's review some of the teachings of Jesus. We'll go through these real quick some of the revolutionary teachings of Jesus that flew in the face of the way the world operated when he showed up into it. Here's an example of four of them. First is the Good Samaritan. You all know the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you know in the story of the Good Samaritan, it's a Jewish people and then there's Samaritan people. And in the story, the Samaritan is the good guy. And the Jewish guy is the bad guy. In fact, the Jewish Levite, in fact, the Jewish priest is the bad guy. People hearing this story were like, Jesus, you mixed up all the characters. Like this is like coming to us when we were growing up in the Cold War and telling a story about the very nice Russians and the very mean Americans. Like you mixed up, no one's gonna go to that movie. Like we love Rocky Four because the American guy beats the Russian guy. Like that's what we loved about it. Jesus told a story where the bad guy is the good guy and where the good guy is the bad guy. And in it, when he told that, the people said, wait, what? We should care about those people? People stopped. In it, he also redefined what a neighbor means. Because he said, you should do this to your neighbor, love your neighbor. And to them, they would have thought, of course we should love our neighbor. But that guy's not my neighbor, because he's a Samaritan, and I'm a Jew. So yeah, I should love my neighbor. I'd love the people like me. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Your neighbor doesn't mean just people like you. It means people, whoever's around you, that's your neighbor. Even if they disagree with you. Even if they're, even if they're wrong. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus told three parables, lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son. And the bottom line there that Jesus talked about, okay, the message right there is that sinners, when someone is a sinner and someone is away, God likes to chase them down, but not as people would have thought, chase them down to punish them, chase them down to save them. 
is that God looks not to pay them back, but to bring them back, regardless of what sin they had done. Love your enemies was the teaching that he gave in the Sermon on the Mount. And the people, love your enemies, do good, pray for people, bless people, to which the people would have thought to themselves, why in the world would I do any of that stuff? Jesus blew their minds. And then, of course, the widow with the two mites, the parable that Jesus told about the widow with the two mites, to which people would have listened to that and said, what are you thinking, Jesus? Is that Jesus came and said, here's a person who gave $10,000. Here's a person who gave two pennies. And the two pennies is bigger than the 10,000? They would have said, no, this person is much more valuable to society, Jesus. Jesus said, but this one's much more valuable to me. And that's just Jesus' teachings. How about Jesus' actions? Okay, if you want to know what a person believes, you don't just listen to their words, you see what they did. At the time of Jesus, if you had, if you've ever heard the expression, cleanliness is next to godliness, you've heard that before? Okay, maybe some of us have preached that to our families, cleanliness is next to godliness. At the time that Jesus came into the world, cleanliness was more than godliness. Cleanliness was, was the equivalent. You would do anything you could to avoid being unclean because unclean meant ungodly. And look at some of the stories that we see of Jesus and his interaction with unclean people. First of the story from the Samaritan woman, John chapter four, you know this story. When Jesus came to this woman, who was a sinner woman, and she was also a Samaritan woman. So let's, either one of those is enough by themselves, add them both together, and you got the double whammy. Jesus said to her what? When he came to her. He said, woman, give me a drink. And of course, we can spiritualize that, and we talk about how Jesus is thirsting and the water, for sure. But let's just take it in a literal context. Jesus, what are you doing? Do you realize what Jesus is doing? Jesus, that's a woman. That's a Samaritan. That's a sinful Samaritan woman. Strike one, strike two, strike three. And you want to do what? You want to put your pure Jewish lips on her nasty Samaritan sinful woman cup and share and germs and virus it without a mask? And Jesus said, yeah, give me a drink. Sick people. Jesus didn't just touch sick people, which was bad. You know what Jesus would do? He would embrace them. Like, not just touch them. Just the touch would have been enough. Jesus embraced them. Tax collectors. Tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were an embarrassment. They were a shame. You avoided tax collectors like the plague. What did Jesus do to tax collectors? He went to their parties. He invited himself to their parties. Their sin-infested, tax-collector-infested, cootie-infested parties. And Jesus said, I'd like to go. Levi, you having a party? I'm coming over there. Zacchaeus, I'm there. You just tell me when. Invite your friends. Invite all your tax-collector friends. And Jesus went. And to which all his people like Peter, James, and John must have been like, Jesus, what are you doing? We don't go there. Like, we don't, we don't go inside there. We walk by there and we do like this, okay? Or we throw stuff at there, but we don't go inside there. And Jesus said, you guys don't get it. You don't get it. I don't look at the world through the lens of politics. I don't look at the world through the lens of class. I don't look at the world through the lens of economic uh, capability. I look at the world through the lens of love to everyone who's made in the image of God. Last one is that centurion servant who asked a favor of Jesus. Centurions were the bad guys. They were the Roman guys. They were the ones who killed Jesus. And Jesus went out of his way to say, that person who you all hate, sure, be happy to do a favor for that guy. And his disciples, you can see they got the message. 
they got the message. And you can see it when the church first started, the book of Acts. What was the very first problem that we read about in the book of Acts? Okay, we get to Acts chapter 6. The church had started, the church started to spread. Acts chapter 6, a problem occurs. And the solution was they ordained deacons to do something so that the apostles could preach the word of God and commit themselves to prayer. What was that something that they got the deacons to do? What was their job? You remember? To serve the widow's tables, to clean the widow's tables. So you had the widows who were in the food and they'd spill, so they'd clean the tables and they'd serve the food. They had to find people to do this job because people like Peter, James, John were spending all their time doing this. So they were just like, guys, we need someone else to do this. We need you guys to preach and we need someone else. We need you guys to lead us in prayer. Someone else can do the tables. And they're like, no, 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 We want to do the tables. You want to do the tables? No, you're better. You got better. No, 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 we want to do the tables because we saw Jesus. And Jesus was at his highest when he was on the ground washing feet. And he washed all of our feet and we didn't deserve it. And he went over to nasty old Judas and he knew Judas, what Judas was going to do. And he washed his stanky feet. I'd have cut that guy's feet off if I could have, but Jesus washed his feet. So you know what? We want to serve the poor. We want to serve the widow's tables. We want to be down here. Someone else give the sermon. And they said, no, 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 no. We're going to ordain guys to do this. We need you guys to do that. Because after three years with Jesus, they got it. And that's why I say this. Church first started. No strings attached love and compassion were the hallmarks of the early church. No strings attached love and compassion were the hallmarks of the early church. The church took off, turned the world upside down, not because they had buildings, that's the name of the series, more than a building. It wasn't the building. It wasn't that they had the coolest uh, uh, pictures or, or, or technology or their AV system or they had the best coffee or their donuts were the freshest or their preacher was the funniest. It didn't have any of that stuff. What the church took off and changed the world, the power was love. The power was compassion for all. And I'll give you an example. And I've told you this example before. I've spoken about this. Let's talk about abortion. You know, in the Roman Empire, again, time of Jesus, first century, second century, third century, abortion was not a crime. It was not even a sin. It wasn't seen as bad, okay, by the world at large. It was just seen as, you know what? Kids are useless. Kids have no value. So if you don't want it, you just get rid of it. And they didn't have a problem with that. And then Christianity came along. And Jesus said, no, every person has value. Every person has value. And not just the person who says, hey, value me, but the person who can't say value me. The person who can't offer anything to society has value because they're made in the image of God, even if no one wants them. No one wants the beggar on the street. No one wants the child here. It doesn't matter. They're children of God. Every single one has value. The value comes from God, not from man. You know what the Roman Empire they used to do at the time? is what they would do is if they had a child, okay, they didn't have the, the technology to do abortion the way we do. So what they do is they have the baby. So they had some ways they could kill, but the mo most people, they would have the baby and they didn't want the baby. They would put it out in a forest or by a river. And they wouldn't call it killing. They would just say, we're leaving the baby to its fate. Because again, they believe in the gods. So if this child was meant to live, the gods would save it. And if this child was eaten by a bear, okay, or rolled into the river, then it was, it was not in... It, its fate was to die. And they had no problem. There's no conscience. There was no problem right there. What did Christians do? What do you think Christians did in the face of society doing that? They went and saved the babies. And you had Christians, poor for the most part, 
who barely had enough to raise their own kids find a baby and scoop them up and raise them as their own. And you say, why would you do that? Like, it's not even yours. It's that simple. Was it, is, it, is it because we were commanded? No. Is it because, like, it's one of the Ten Commandments? Or it's, no. But because we are the body of Christ. And Christ showed dignity to all. Doesn't matter about their economic value. Doesn't matter if they're wanted or not wanted by people. If they're wanted by God, that's what Jesus would do. And we are his body. We don't have a choice. Because the Christians believe this, and I hope you believe this too. This is our message, okay? That was a really long introduction to get to this point, that everybody matters to God whether God matters to them or not. Everybody matters to God whether God matters to them or not. Everybody matters to God whether God matters to them or not. That was the central message of Jesus, and that has to be our central message as the church as well. Let's fast forward from the first century to the 21st century. Let's go to the year 2012. Year 2012 is when STSA, the church, began. God put a seed in my heart and in the heart of some people, okay, a small group around us, and that was simply this, that we have a beautiful church and we have a beautiful ancient faith, but we need to remove some of the barriers that stop it from spreading in the modern world. So bring an ancient faith to a modern world. And that's what we talked about, that we have something beautiful, and now it's time to do our best to take it to the ends of the world, okay? And we talked about a tidal wave that would make a difference in the world and all these different things. And we said it's going to be a place of limitless acceptance, like I said earlier. That's our first core value. It's going to be a place of limitless acceptance, where it doesn't matter what your skin color, doesn't matter what language you speak, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter how you vote. Man, pretty much as long as you're not a Dallas Cowboys fan, you're welcome right here, okay? That's the only thing that maybe excludes you is that anybody here, limitless acceptance. And then we said, like I said, is it not just accept them, but make them part of our family. We are one family. We look different, we think different, but we are one family. Why? Because we're united transformational communal worship by the table of the Lord. That's who we are. And then we express that, 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 that transformation by living a life of faith, believing in a big God, relying on him to do extraordinary things. When everyone else out there sees despair and no hope, we are full of smiles and hope because we have a big God on the inside. And that's who we are as a church. But you know, if we did all those things, something is still missing. Something is still missing. And this thing, if we don't do this, we can't say we're truly the body of Christ. Because Christ came to reveal that everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. He came, not at a distance, but he said, I'm coming to you. So we said, okay, if we are here and we are coming to Arlington, we have to come to Arlington to be Christ, to be in the community, to do as the community does, and to reveal that everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. And the way we decided to do that is we started an organization called Hope Multiplied. It used to be called Hope Association. We changed the name to Hope Multiplied a couple years back. And this is basically our nonprofit community service, but we like to say community impact, wing of the church. And this is our face to the community. And we said, we want to program it and we want to hardwire it into the church. As soon as you say church, certain things must happen. There's got to be liturgy. There's got to be sacraments. There's got to be sermons. There's got to be certain things. So we said, we want to hardwire into the church that impacting the community is a part of who we are. It's part of our DNA. You can't strip it out of the church because then it wouldn't be a church. That's why we created hope. And I remember I wrote down something at the time, something I doodled. I, I, at the time, it was lots of doodles, okay? Just write down certain thoughts. And I wrote down this in one of my doodles about hope. I said, our goal is to significantly impact, and I put in quotes, not just serve, 
not just serve the community, but impact, significantly impact the community around us. Dash, make waves. That's what I wrote there. I want to make waves. Because I think Jesus made waves. I think when Jesus came into a city, everybody was a buzz. And some people may not like it, but there was always buzz. Jesus came, people knew he was there. I think people should know we're here. I think people should feel our presence. I think we should make some waves. Because I think that's what Jesus did. So what we did back in 2012 <clears throat> is instead of coming in saying, okay, this is what we're going to do, how we're going to make waves. We said, we don't know. We don't know what's going on here. So we started to meet with government officials, okay, local government here in Arlington and said, hey, we're a church and we're here to serve and we don't want anything in return. Tell us what you need. And we thought, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. They said, okay, we had lengthy meetings. And basically, it came down to two areas. They said schools and healthcare. These are the two areas, schools and healthcare. So we looked at that and we said, okay, we'll take that. And from that, <clears throat> this is just highlights. This is just some of the stuff that I just pulled out. Okay, and I could, I could put you four or five screens, but in the past 10 years, nine and a half years or whatever it's been now, in the past 10 years, through hope, we have mentored more than 450 at-risk students. And what that means, okay, announced it during the liturgy today for those who weren't here, is that we went to the local school system and we started just with kids in grade four and five. And we said, okay, we can take, you know, maybe 15 kids, 20 kids. And basically, it's like a big brother, big sister program where we mentor them and we meet together. Okay, you get assigned to a, 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 a child who is at risk. And in case you don't want at risk, it's defined as this. Adolescents less likely to transition successfully to adulthood slash self-sufficiency. That's what at risk means. Adolescents less likely to transition successfully to adulthood slash self-sufficiency. We said, okay. We want to help as much as we can. And we started off, one school right here, handful of kids, grade four and five. We've since expanded. Okay, now we're going from grade four to grade eight. We have multiple schools that we are working with. And the whole point of this, whole point of this, no strings attached. No, like, asking for money. No, like, okay, come to church and we're going to bat. None of that stuff. And in fact, <clears throat> let me brag a little bit about this particular one, is now you know we, are, uh, we have a piece of land and we're about to start construction and one of the things you do when you start construction is you have to be friendly with the neighbors, okay? Because any neighbor can say whatever they want. And people, no one in general likes loud noises and dirt and dust from construction. So I went to the Civic Association, Civic Association meeting maybe a couple months ago. And I'm going there, and of course, I'm expecting no one's going to want to see my face. And then when I'm on there, and the lady's talking before me, and I see her name, okay? And I'm like, I think I know that name before. I feel like I met that lady. And I'm Googling her. It was a Zoom meeting, okay? And I'm Googling her over here, and I discover... That's the principle of the school that we do the mentor program. So I'm like, okay, perfect. I am definitely going to say, hey, Kim, great to see you again. Act as if we're best friends right here. But I didn't need to because Kimberly, who was the head of the principal of the school, has since been promoted up even higher. She's something in the administrative, stopped her speech or whatever she was doing. When she saw my name on the Zoom, she stopped her speech. For us, you were there, okay? She stopped her speech to say, Father Anthony, it's great to see you. Really happy to have you, and anyone doesn't know. And she started to talk about the work that we're doing in the community. She's the one who's talking about us. That's like, that's right, that's right, what's up? That's, not... <laughs> that's a wave. That's a wave. <clears throat> Let's go through this quickly here. Sorry, I spent too much time. A thousand gifts more than a thousand gifts delivered to kids with cancer and blood disorders. If, you've ne if you remember pre-COVID, okay, way back in the day, what we used to do is we convert this room at the beginning. Okay, when we first started the church, we've since moved it actually to the hospital. We would convert this room to a holiday party for kids from, it's a partnership with Children's Hospital and iNova. 
that the kids with the cancer and blood disorder section, specifically the sickle cell kids, would come here one day a year. We dress up. We got Santa Claus. We got dancing elves. Okay, we got all kinds of fun stuff. There's games. We throw the best holiday party in the world. No charge whatsoever. Santa Claus, like I said, himself comes and he gives gifts to the kids. And there's like a talent show. And if you've never attended that, then you don't know what you're missing. And I will urge you to come next time we do it. Okay, I don't know when we're going to do it again, but the next time we do it, you come, even don't volunteer. Just come and see the smiles on the people's faces. And then come stand next to me as person after person comes and thanks me as if I did anything. All I did was make the announcement. I didn't do anything. But you, the people who are doing it, and the people come thank me and want to kiss my feet and say, we love the fact that your church is right here. More than a thousand gifts delivered. Uh, more than 1,800 meals and hygiene kits delivered to the homeless. Okay, this is through a program we do called Love Your City. Now, Love Your City is something we do entirely on our own. The others are like partnerships, partnership with the Arlington Public Schools, partnership with the Children's Hospital. Love Your City is something we did entirely on our own where we go downtown to Washington, D.C., and we go to a, a park where there's homeless people, and at the beginning, it started with just serving meals. But it has expanded since then to not just meals, but we try to help them, not just their physical needs, but also other needs. So it was like a resume workshop, okay, that we did. And we brought in people to help people to get resumes. There was a haircut weekend, okay, where we help people to get haircuts. And the point here is, this is a chance for us to say, you matter to God, even if God doesn't matter to you. Next one, 30,000 meals to food insecure children. That 30,000 meals, that's all over the past year, year and a half, okay? It's, it's actually started right before COVID. We started a program called Healthy Start Program. And the idea, I'll be honest, 100%, when this, I heard, first heard this idea, I was kind of like, I don't think we should do this. I think this is more than we, we're biting off more than we can chew. Healthy Start Program is, you know, in the schools, there's kids who get the reduced fee lunches, okay? And the school gives them food when they're in school. But what happens on weekends and holidays? Well, we said, okay, let's step in there and let's, let's fill that gap for those who are in the food insecure situations to provide healthy meals. Me personally, I said, this is more than we can, but you know what? I get outvoted all the time. So I, it's, not, it's not a dictatorship around here. And we started this program before COVID started. Once COVID started, the need became even greater because now it wasn't just holidays. It was kind of like a year-long holiday. You know what? Our people stepped up and we delivered more than 30,000 meals to food insecure children during that time. Now schools are back. Thank God. That doesn't mean that the program has stopped. The program is now going to continue. And we now have more than 150 students across two DC schools that we have committed throughout the entire school year to offer healthy food during weekends and holidays. Last but not least is that we got two mobile health clinics. We got one operating in Washington, DC, in Anacostia, and we got another one all the way across the world operating in Cairo, Egypt. All this has happened because we feel it is our, I don't want to even say it's our duty, it's our, it's, 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 it's our definition that if we're the body of Christ, then we have to be out there in the community revealing God. And I see some people want to clap. Yeah, you can absolutely clap. These are things worth clapping. Yeah, right? This. <clears throat> now, last thing I want to say about this is some people look at this list and they would say to themselves, this costs money. This absolutely costs money. Those gifts, they're not free. The food is not free. The stuff that we do costs money. You say, where do you get the resources for this? Very simple. Sure, some people do donate and being a nonprofit, okay, some people donate, but the vast majority of the resources for this comes from the church. Because I stand up here and I talk to you about tithing and I say it's our duty, your duty and my duty. With the money that goes in my pocket, the 10% of it goes to the church. You know that. 
Well, I believe it's no different for the church. 10% of the church's budget goes back into the community. And that's something that we, again, we program that in. And that's not something that we're debating, do we do this, not do this. We have defined that in our budget, 10% of it, we're giving right back out to the community. Because I think that's how the world should work, is that I should help you, and then you should help you, and then you should help you. And that's just kind of the way we should all be, the church should be leading by example. Now you come and say, hey, wait a minute, right now, Father Anthony, you're trying to fundraise for a building. Why are you giving money back in the community? Say simple. Because that's our definition. That's our identity. If our love for God is not demonstrated with genuine love for the community, then just pull the plug on the whole thing. Pull the plug on it. Because I don't want to be part of a selfish church. Do you want to be part of a selfish church? Do you want to be reflecting our, our selfish God who doesn't care about the needs around him? I love this quote from St. Teresa of Avila. She says, Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes to which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless now. I want to take this in a personal way for me personally at an individual level, but I want to take this also as a church level. Like if the church isn't making a difference in the world, who is? If the church doesn't care about the least of these, if the church isn't fighting for those who can't fight for themselves, like who is? Bottom line, I'm done. Bottom line, Jesus expected a lot from his followers 2,000 years ago. And I think Jesus still expects a lot from his followers today. Jesus expected them and he challenged them to live different lives than everyone else. And he showed them, I am different than anything you knew before. And I'm challenging you to follow the same example. Selfless Jesus, selfless church. We need to show people that our faith is not just manifest in praying, reading the Bible, and fasting. Those are all important things. I'm not saying don't do that. Don't get me in trouble. But what I'm saying is we need to show people that church is more than an hour on Sundays. Church is more than a building they drive by. Church is more than a concept that they hear about. Church is people who live radically transformed lives and that manifests itself in the way we radically treat others a different way. So that's our core value, genuine love for community. Can we read it all together one last time? Read it with me. We bleed with love for the community around us, especially those who are without Christ. We don't just care about spiritual needs, but physical emotional, and social needs as well. We seek to be a true blessing to the community in whatever way we can. I've heard it said that what our goal is as a church is that people may question our beliefs. They may disagree with our beliefs, but they will be inspired by our love and our compassion for every single person. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your church. We thank you, Lord, for the example that you set for us, revealing to us who God truly is. God is love. And I pray that you would help us as your body to make your heart proud and to be loved to the community around us and to be loved to every single person that we interact with, both in this room and outside of these walls. We pray this in the name of your Son, with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation. Thank you so much for watching the message. We want to invite you one more time to partner with us in bringing our ancient faith to a modern world and donate any amount to morethanabuilding.org. Make sure to follow us on social media for real-time updates and even more inspiration during the rest of your week. I hope you have a wonderful week and enjoy the rest of your day.